Will you please turn in your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 16? 1 Kings 16. These brothers have some Bibles, so that if you need one, get their attention as they make their way back. That Bible is marked at 1 Kings 16. And just before we get into the passage at hand today, I do want to make one special introduction related to the design of our building. Uh, Last week, being the first uh, in this expanded auditorium, I had opportunity for just a couple of minutes to stand over in the carpeted area in the entryway over here, and I saw several of you walk in this side door, and about four or five, right in a row. And as those four or five people walked in, all of them, every last one, almost involuntarily, I could see with their lips said, wow. That was really a neat moment, but that, that wow was made possible by some people who have talent at designing stuff like this, and so we hired people that know what they're doing, and the outcome is what you see. And one of those people is with us today. Uh, our interior designer for this is uh, Jill Wild of Wild by Design, and Terry and Jill Wild are here uh, from Florida. They uh, have a family up here, but they also wanted to be here on a a Sunday soon after we moved in, in order to see how everything turned out. So Terry and Jill are right over here. You guys just raise your hands uh, right over there. Make sure you thank them for coming and thank uh, Jill for her work, and let's thank her with uh, applause, all right? Well, I've been uh, following politics somewhat closely since before the time that I was old enough to vote. And I like to read about the momentous political events in our country that have taken place throughout our nation's existence. I've been particularly interested in presidential politics, in the candidates, in the campaigns, in the issues. And so if you can't uh, sleep sometime, just give me a call and I can bore you with trivia that will put you to sleep better than any sleeping pill or sermon of mine. One of the things that I've noticed about presidential campaigns is how much hype each side foments about the significance of this particular election. Every election that I can remember is said to be the most important in our lifetime. You know, you can only say that so much. How many most importants can there be? It's kind of like when you're watching the cable news shows and they always have breaking news. Every news story is breaking news. And some news stories that are two days old are still breaking news. Now, fear motivates, and that's why this is the most important election of our lifetime uh, is so pervasive. Fear motivates, and so it's no wonder that each side does it. But we buy into it not only because we're motivated by fear, purposely generated by the campaigns, but because, friends, we place way too much faith in the power of government to change things. And we do that because we fail to see that our problems are not primarily political or economic. The most pressing needs of our country are not political and economic. They are spiritual and moral. And as we continue our series today, titled Portraits of Grace, we're going to begin looking at the career of a prophet named Elijah whose ministry took place in one of the darkest periods in the history of Israel. Now, two weeks ago, we finished our two-week look at uh, the life of King David. And King David had a son named Solomon, who became king, of course. And then Solomon had two sons, Jeroboam and Rehoboam. 
And after Solomon's death in the year 931 B.C., the kingdom was, was split, and these two sons, Jeroboam and Rehoboam, led various portions of this divided kingdom. Jeroboam was a very wicked king, leading what's called the northern kingdom, or Israel. And then the other, the southern kingdom, was called Judah. The northern kingdom called Israel had 19 kings, and they were all bad. And as you read through 1 Kings, you find that one after another is plotting and conniving and killing for power. And verse 29 of chapter 16 makes this statement regarding the man who's in power at the time Elijah comes on the scene. Chapter 16, verse 29. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, son of Omri, became king of Israel. And he reigned in Samaria over Israel 22 years. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. (laughs) Now his father had previously been crowned the heavyweight champion of immoral leadership. In fact, if you look back at verse 25, it says this. Omri did evil in the eyes of the Lord and sinned more than all those before him. And so now comes his son Ahab, who's even worse than his father. And now this is the political environment that Elijah steps into. But we'll see that his focus is not first on politics or economics, but evil and righteousness. And friends, we need to see clearly then the needs of our day as Elijah did in his. And that's why I say in the outline that's inserted in your program, I encourage you to take a look there. If you've not already pulled that out, please do so. In the very first point we're going to see from chapter 16 and 17 of 1 Kings is we have to understand the problem with the world. We must understand the problem with the world. What is the world's problem? Is it primarily political, economic, or something else? Let's ask God to help us as we do. Father, we bow humbly before the truth of your word. We ask you, Lord, to quiet our hearts, grant clarity to our minds, help us to be able to focus upon what you have to teach us from the example of your prophet Elijah. And help us, like he, to be able to step into the morass that is the spiritual and moral decay of our day, with your word as our sword. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, chapter 16 has described a couple of evil kings, Omri and now his son Ahab. But if you were a political advisor, if you were an economic advisor at the time, you would not necessarily thought things were so bad. I mean, after all, verse 29 of chapter 16 says that Ahab would reign for 22 years. So what that means is stability. No coups, no assassinations. And then there was the shrewd alliance that Ahab created by marrying the right girl, at least the right girl politically. Notice what verse 31 says. He married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians. Now, this marriage is a political masterstroke. As a result of it, Israelite goods now had access to world ports through Phoenician seamanship. This alliance profited both countries. And as a result, the economy is booming. 
And so who can argue with prosperity? And so that's what we generally judge. What's the political statement? It's the economy, stupid, right? That's what matters. Whether or not everybody has a cell phone and a laptop and more of the latest stuff. The economy was booming. Who can argue with prosperity? And yet God sees those times not as good, not at all, but rather intensely evil. Now why is that? What was it that made Ahab the worst of a line of bad kings in Israel? So much so that the assessment given in verse 30 is repeated in verse 33. Notice verse 33. Ahab did more to arouse the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than did all the kings of Israel before him. So what was it that Ahab did to qualify him for this distinction? Well, verse 31 tells us. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. Ahab also made an Asherah pole. It's Baal worship that engraved Ahab's name at the top of the apostasy list. Those few verses mention the pagan god Baal several times. Jezebel's dad, Ethbaal, is named after this god. And there's serving Baal and worshiping Baal. And there's the temple of Baal. And worshiping of false gods is a problem all by itself, but it's all the more lethal when you have a Baal evangelist and enforcer in the royal palace, and that's what you have in Jezebel. As you read through the book of 1 Kings, you find that she began a systematic extermination campaign of the prophets of the true and living God, Yahweh of Israel. Now that introduction to the administration of Ahab is dark enough. But the final verse of the chapter gives a sample of what life was like under his rule. Verse 34. In Ahab's time, Hiel of Bethel rebuilt Jericho. He laid its foundations at the cost of his firstborn son, Abiram. And he set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segu in accordance with the word of the Lord spoken by Joshua, son of Nun. Now, this guy, Hiel, is building, actually rebuilding, as the the text says, and as a result of him rebuilding Jericho, people are dying. He has two sons who have died as a result of this undertaking. Now, why is that? Well, as you go back into your Old Testament, just a couple of books, the book of Joshua after Joshua had taken the city of Jericho. And you remember that the walls fell miraculously by the hand of God uh, for Joshua and the people. And after that, here is what the Bible says. Joshua chapter 6, cursed before the Lord is the one who undertakes to rebuild this city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn son, he will lay its foundation. At the cost of his youngest son, he will set up its gates. (laughs) And here you have in the time of Ahab, Without doubt, Ahab, decreeing that this is to happen, having his defense department, as it were, hire this man, Hiel, to do this very thing that God has forbidden. Who would dare come under the curse 
that Joshua had pronounced, none other than Ahab. That's how wicked was he and his administration. And he did so because undoubtedly Jericho had a strategic location. And so he wanted it for himself, and in defiance of God's curse, he does this. Verse 34 makes sure for us to be clear that these sons died in accordance with the word of the Lord spoken by Joshua. It is God's word that has been defied. And God's word will not, will not be defied by anyone or any nation. And as a result, God takes action. See, friends, our problems are not primarily economic and political, but moral and spiritual. And if we don't get that, we will continually get the solution to our nation's problems or the solution to our own problems backwards. We will begin with fixing it from the top. The fact is, it needs to be fixed from the bottom up. A country most often gets the government it deserves. Because the people have bought into the moral and spiritual values that are contrary to God's word. And you see this at all times and in all places. The great apostle Paul, when he visited the Greek city of Athens, the Bible tells us that he visited a place called Mars Hill. And as he stood there, here's what the Bible tells us. That he was greatly distressed to see that the city of Athens was full of idols. And then notice that next word, so, he reasoned in the synagogue, so, it's an important word, connects us with his his action, with his motivation, what motivated him to reason in the synagogues and in the marketplace day by day, what motivated him was that he was troubled, distressed to see that the city was full of idols. And as a result of that now, he's going to preach to them in Acts chapter 17, the word of God. He's not going to say we need to undertake a new political campaign. What you need is the truth of the Word of God that you have discarded. Now, we live in such a day, and we need to get it right. The problems in America are primarily moral and spiritual, not political and not economic. Our Congress a few years ago passed a law called the Defense of Marriage Act, DOMA. The Congress passed it, and it is the president's responsibility to execute the laws according to our Constitution, to carry them out. Our president determined that he didn't agree with that law, and he would not direct his Justice Department to defend a law of the United States. And so last year, when the DOMA law was challenged before our Supreme Court, Unlike what normally happens when there's a law of the United States and it's defended by the Solicitor General of the United States, those who were the defenders of DOMA had to find someone else to defend it. Our administration made clear it would not do so. The abortion issue. You've heard me say on Sanctity of Life Sunday back in January that our president is undoubtedly the most radical president we have ever had with regard to this issue of abortion. That is a fact, friends. He supported as a state senator and then supported a bill as a U.S. senator, a bill that would, uh, uh, would have outlawed the barbaric practice of partial birth abortion 
and he supported its defeat. Our president is intent on being culturally cool with people who continue to degrade our culture. He makes no comment at all on the butcher shop of Kermit Gosnell in Philadelphia, who last year, thank God, went to trial and was convicted. But this man ran for years a butcher shop of human children. In fact, let me read for you an excerpt, the 300-page grand jury report on Gosnell's uh, 2013 indictment, according to one report, describes a horror show where abortions after the 24th week of pregnancy, illegal in Pennsylvania and many other states, were regularly performed in a filthy facility that reeked of cat urine, was splattered with blood, littered with unsterile instruments and broken down equipment. Untrained, unlicensed staff performed much of the work, from administering narcotics to severing spinal cords, the report said. Gosnell only showed up in the evenings and on Sundays when he terminated the most advanced pregnancies with the assistance of his wife, the grand jury found. Gosnell trained his staff to do ultrasounds a certain way to make fetuses look smaller, that is, babies look smaller. But some were breathing and moving when delivered, staff testified. I won't go on, it is too grisly. And our president says nothing, not a word. So what do we do? What we tend to do is say the solution is political. The solution is economic. But you need to understand that our president was elected, free and fair election, by people who deserve the government we get. The morass is spiritual, and friends, it is moral. And thanks be to God, God knows where we are, and God knows what we need to do. Revelation chapter 2. As in chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation, God speaks to the seven churches of Asia Minor. One of those churches is living in a time of, of very deep unrighteousness and immorality. And God says to them this, I know where you live where Satan has his throne. And it should be a comfort, as God designed it to be a comfort to that church. It should be a comfort to us. God knows where we are. God knows the times in which we live. And God Almighty knows what we should do. And as a result, into this ninth century B.C., spiritual mess enters a man named Elijah. And it's in that context that chapter 17 begins. And chapter 16 and 17 are connected. You know, we've got chapter divisions in our Bibles, and sometimes we think those are hermetically sealed. They're not. And in fact, there were no chapter divisions when the Bible was originally written. And chapter 16 flows right into chapter 17. And notice verse number 1. Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishba in Gilead said to Ahab. Now as you read the preceding 16 chapters of 1 Kings or the other preceding books of your Old Testament, you won't find any mention of this guy, Elijah. This is the first time he shows up. So into all of this with Ahab and Jezebel and all the stuff that's going on, now Elijah, who's he? And virtually nothing's said about him. Nothing is said or known about him other than his place of origin. Why is that? Because God wants to focus to be not upon the messenger but on the message that he is delivering to Ahab and now by extension to us. 
So friends, we must understand what the problem is with the world. And the problem with the world is spiritual. And now God is bringing his word into that problem as he instructs us to do as well. And that's why I say secondly in your outline. We must understand not only the problem with the world, but the centrality of the word. The centrality of the word. Did you know, dear friends, that we live in a day in which the word of God has been depreciated? The Word of God is being depreciated not just in the culture in general, but in our churches as well. You know, to, for you to sit and listen and to engage your mind while some guy gets up and talks for a long time takes some discipline on your part. It does. We are people who think in 22-minute segments. Why? Because that's how much program you get in a half-hour show. You get 30 minutes of commercial and 22 minutes of program. And when the commercial comes on, you automatically tune in and tune out, right? And that's very hard then for people who are in instant gratification to engage their minds on the task of looking at what God has to tell us. And as a result of that now, many churches, because the objective has become get the largest crowd you can rather than to glorify God by preaching His Word to His people, because that's become the objective, we now have to tone down this Word of God thing. I mean, who's going to come for that? (laughs) Who's going to listen to some guy yap for that long and engage their minds? And so, you got to dance, you got to pop, you got to sizzle, you got to do something. You guys do not want to see me dance. (laughs) I actually know someone who went to seminary. Not not the seminary I went to, I should say. But he went to an evangelical seminary. And when he he graduated, he said that when he came out of seminary, he was convinced that preaching was the least productive thing he could do. Do you know why? Do you know why he thought that? Because what is being taught is not exposition, exegesis of God's Word. What is being taught are management principles, equivalent to a kind of Christian MBA for how to run an organization and how to get a crowd. We've got to understand, dear friends, in the situation that we are in, as Elijah did and Elijah was sent to do, understand the centrality of the word as the solution to the problem. And that's why I say in your outline, God's word is our remedy. Chapter 17. Now Elijah, the Tishbite from Tishba in Gilead, said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, whom I serve, There will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. And so what's the remedy to the problem? Well, it's it's God's word. And God is sending Elijah to proclaim his word to Ahab and to the nation. Now, what had God said in his word about this issue of the disobedience of his people and the consequences that would follow? Deuteronomy chapter 11 says this. God said through Moses, be careful 
Or you will be enticed to turn away and worship other gods and bow down to them. This is precisely what Israel is doing under Ahab, right? Then the Lord's anger will burn against you, and He will shut up the heavens so that it will not rain and the ground will, not yield, will yield no produce. And so now in faithfulness to His word, He is sending Elijah to say that this is now precisely what's going to happen to Israel because you have bowed down and worshipped other gods. Then verses 2 and 3 reinforce why the Word of God is the remedy. Notice verses 2 and 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Leave here, turn eastward, and hide in the Kareth Ravine east of the Jordan. That seems like a weird thing, doesn't it? I mean, here's God sending Elijah. Elijah just kind of comes out of nowhere. We know virtually nothing uh, about him other than his, his name means God is Yahweh, Elijah, Eliyah, Elohim, Yahweh. We know what his name means, and that's about it. And he comes on the scene, and he speaks the word of the Lord, and then immediately the Lord says to him, go and hide. Now, why does God say to Elijah, go and hide? Well, many commentators say it's because, as we're going to see in a little bit, Jezebel, who is the chief evangelist for Baalism, she has put out a contract hit upon the prophets of Yahweh. And so, to preserve Elijah, God says, go and hide. But I don't believe that's the reason in this context that God tells Elijah to to leave. The reason that God tells him to leave is because God has said numerous times throughout His Word, that the giving of His Word is an act of His grace. And the withdrawal of His Word is an act of His judgments. One of the reasons that we see what we see happening in our churches is because God is judging. Amos chapter 8. The days are coming, declares the Sovereign Lord, when I will send a famine through the land. Not a famine of food, or thirst for water, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. Men will stagger from sea to sea and wander from north to east, searching for the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. Do you know what we're supposed to get from this, friends? We're supposed to understand that sitting where you're sitting and standing where I'm standing is a privilege of God's grace, that we're able to open his book and see light from his word, be given direction in his promises and his gospel, that's what God is telling us. I don't have to give this. This is your life. This is your food. This is that by which you live. But if you defy me, I will withdraw that. And I'm afraid that we're beginning to see that withdrawal in our country and in our churches. We think to ourselves, okay, you know, Elijah, the prophets back in those days, they were the embodiment literally of the Word of God. I mean, they were the ones who God sent to speak the Word of God. And now 
the Word of God is inscripturated for us, so the Word of God cannot disappear. I mean, we've got it. We've got it in print. As long as I've got a big, fat Bible on my coffee table at home, we've got the Bible, right? But a closed Bible does you absolutely no good. The Word of God is only useful to us as it is opened, and as, that is, as it is taught, and as it is preached, and as it is read, and as it is studied, and then as a result of all of that, as it is obeyed. And then when that happens, a change occurs in God's people. And when churches like that are multiplied throughout the land, a change happens in our nation. That's the change that we need. I want to ask you, dear friends, have you taken God's word for granted? Just ask yourself, how many times this week did you open God's word? Look into its pages to see yourself there, to see his character there, to make the changes that are necessitated as a result. If we take God's word for granted, God's judgment will fall on us as it did upon them. Jesus said in his prayer the night before he died to the Father, for his first followers, the the apostles, and then by extension to us, he prayed this, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Sanctify them. What's it mean? Separate them. Make a difference in them and through them. Make them different than the world. That's what sanctify means. And you sanctify them, we ask you, Father, through the truth. And it is your word that is the truth. And if we are not people who are regularly feasting on the word, then it is no surprise at all, is it, that our churches become worldly? Because we don't know the difference. Because we have not been sanctified, because we have not been separated, because we have not been in the Word. I'm going to move on, but let me just serve you all notice. Most of you know this, but our church is not one that subscribes to the idea that we are going to reach the world by becoming like the world. We will reach whatever corner, whatever people in God's wor- world He has for us, we will reach them one way and one way only by obedience to what he has told us in his word. So God's word is our remedy. God's word, secondly, is our comfort, I say, our comfort. Verse 4, you, Elijah, will drink from the brook. And I've directed the ravens to supply you with food there. So he did what the Lord had told him. He went to the Kareth Ravine, east of the Jordan, and he stayed there. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. Sometime later, the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. Now, I say this means that God's word is our, our comfort. And why do, I, why do I say that? Well, Elijah is being supplied for. And he's being supplied for in a weird way. Ravens bringing him stuff. Now, I mean, that's weird enough to have birds supplying your stuff. You know, I don't know what roadkill they're bringing. I don't know what. So it's weird just in that, you know. 
They're bringing meat from wherever ravens get meat, I guess. But the fact that ravens are doing it is weird, too, just because, you know, the first few books of your Bible have a number of laws. They are called the books of the law, the first five. And in those laws, there are certain kinds of birds that you're not to eat, that are considered unclean. And Leviticus 11 says, these are the birds you're to detest and not eat. And it included in that list any kind of raven. So here's God using these ravens to bring food to Elijah. But Elijah is being supplied for, albeit in this kind of weird way. But here's what we easily forget, that there were all of the other people in Israel who were not being supplied for this way, at least as far as we know. And so how is it that they are to be comforted? Elijah is being supplied for this way. And we could just simply make the moral of the story here, at least on this point, that God will supply all our needs. And certainly the Bible teaches that, Philippians 4.19. But we forget there's all these other people, and they don't have ravens coming in as far as we know to give them stuff. And there is this drought that is affecting their ability, and the Bible tells us later it goes on for three years. And what God is directing His people to do is, you have, you have taken for granted my word. You have turned away from my word, as a matter of fact. You have heinously disobeyed my word. But now I am calling you back to draw your comfort, even in the middle of the drought, in the truth of my word and the promise that if you repent, you come back to me, I will not leave you nor forsake you. God's word is a comfort directly to Elijah, but then also in a different way to the people of Israel who experienced this drought. God's word is our remedy. God's word is our comfort. And then thirdly, I say in your outline, God's word is our privilege. Our privilege. Verse 8. Then the word of the Lord came to him. And let me just stop there. Do you see how many times in this narrative, friends, it's the word of the Lord came. The word of the Lord came. And this is why I have that as the central idea in this message. Because it's the central idea in the story. Verse 8, Then the word of the Lord came to him, Go at once to Zarephath in the region of Sidon and stay there. I've directed a widow there to supply you with food. And I say that is telling us that God's word is our privilege, and, and here's why. Jesus, when he walked the earth about 900 years after this, in his earthly ministry, Jesus made mention of this very episode of God the Father sending Elijah to a widow to get additional sustenance. And in Luke chapter 4, here's what Jesus said. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time, yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. Now, why does Jesus say that? And if you read verse 28 of Luke 4, you'll see that the people were outraged that Jesus brought this up because this is a, an episode that the Jews would like to forget. Elijah, this marvelous prophet of God, is sent not to a widow in Israel, but to this Gentile woman, a Phoenician woman in Sidon, in Zarephath. And Jesus says, you know, there were all kinds of widows he could have gone to, but God sent him to her, to a Gentile, considered to be a Gentile dog. 
according to the Jews of that day. And that's the reason I say God's word is our privilege. Guess what? At least, at least for me, I'm a Gentile. And the reason I have God's word is because God has sent his word to us. God has given his word to us. And as a result of this, we are to be extremely, absolutely grateful to God for his word of God that has come to us and is to be our light and our guide and our direction and our comfort. And that's why I say, fourthly, God's word is not only our remedy, comfort, our privilege, but it is our guide. God's word is our guide. Verses 10 through 16. For the sake of time, I will allow you to read that on your own. But as you read verses 10 through 16, indeed, Elijah goes to and finds this widow in Zarephath, and she has nothing, the narrative tells us. She's down to just her last bit of grain and some oil, and that's all she has. And so Elijah says, uh, go ahead, make something for me. God has sent me, and you're to make something for me. And then when she makes what she has, he then says, I'll take first. Well, as you, as you read through that, you think, wow, <clears throat> he's really hungry or he's really selfish or something. But in that narrative, Elijah assures this woman, the Lord God who sent me to you is going to take care of you. And he is testing her belief in that word of the Lord. And that's why he says, give to me, give to me first. Now this woman she could have reasoned a lot of ways, couldn't she? Think about if that's you. This is all I have. God is saying to me through the prophet, give it all up. And you could reason, well, that would be foolish. That wouldn't be good stewardship. Let's step back for a moment. Let's think about this. And that's why I say God's word is our guide. Friends, when you obey God's word, even when obedience does not seem to be the right course to our finite minds, then we obey anyway. And when we obey, we find God to be faithful to His Word. God's Word is our guide. Not the way we rationalize it. Not the way we reason it. Not the way we think it through. God is saying, do what I say and leave the rest to me. And dear church, Do what God says. Individually, corporately, do what God says and leave the rest to Him. He's our guide and our faithful guide. Thanks be to God. And in verses 10 through 16, Elijah tells this woman, God is going to supply for you. But then we have this event beginning in verse 17. Sometime later, the son of the woman who owned the house became ill. He grew worse and worse, finally stopped breathing. She said to Elijah, what do you have against me, man of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? Well, she's done this in obedience, and now she loses her son. That's what you get for obeying God. And then she does what many of us will do, and in fact is is often a good thing for us to do. In the midst of calamity, in the midst of trial, in the midst of difficulty, we become introspective and we say, Lord, what are you saying to me here? But the Lord was not punishing her for any particular sin. But the Lord was setting this up to show her the last point in your outline. 
God's word is our hope. Because as you read that narrative, then to the end of the chapter, verse 24, you find that God used Elijah to raise this young man. And it is God's promise, God's word, that is our hope for the future. God is saying this, you obey me now, you leave tomorrow to me. Do you remember Jesus in Matthew chapter 6? Do not worry about your life, what you will wear, what you will eat. And do not worry about tomorrow. The difficulty, the evil of today is enough. Tomorrow will take care of itself. So do not worry. And what is our hope in for tomorrow and next week and next year and for the remainder of our lives? It is God's promise, God's word to us. The question for us is this. In the midst of today, do I believe that he cares to produce good for me tomorrow? And thus I can trust in the hope that he gives in his promises. And therefore I will obey today. Deuteronomy chapter 8, God said to his people, In the wilderness, he fed you with manna which your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and that he might test you, but notice this, to do good for you in the end. Do you believe that, dear friend? That whatever God is doing today, you can have great hope in whatever God is doing today because whatever he is doing, he is doing for the purpose of good for you in the end. And that's why I say in your take-home truth then, God's word is sufficient, absolutely sufficient for life and godliness. And I say their life and godliness, I've taken that from the Apostle Peter, from 1 Peter chapter 1, but that the promises of God are all that we need. He's given us all that we need for life and godliness. And he has given it to us in his promises, in his word. And I love that Peter says life and godliness. Because notice, he uses both words. He could have just said for godliness. And this is what we would do. We would compartmentalize that to say godliness is churchy stuff. But he says, no, God's word is sufficient for you, has given us all that we need, yes, for godliness, yes, for direct spiritual matters and our direct relationship with God, but for life in general because it's all related to God. And so God's Word is absolutely sufficient for every last thing you face, every decision you make, everything you go through. It is God's Word that provides the direction, the comfort, the answers that we need. We're going to go to the Lord in prayer. But friends, as we do, let's thank the Lord for the privilege of being the recipients of His Word. Let's ask the Lord to make us people who are faithful to the reading and the study and the preaching and the teaching and most of all the obedience that we need to His Word. And for those of you who came into this room, and this is all strange to you, you need God's Word. This world needs God's Word. But you personally need God's word, and you need the good news that's contained in that word. And here's the good news. Even though you have sinned against a holy God, as have I and all of us, God, the Son, Jesus Christ, came to earth to do for you what you could not do for yourself because of your sin, in order for you to have a relationship with the God who made you. And so, how do you begin a relationship with God? Well, here's how. 
you admit that you're a sinner. And then you recognize that Jesus died to pay the penalty for your sin. And then you repent of your sin. No longer going your own route. No longer following your own instructions. Lord, I'm going to follow you and your instructions. And you pray that from your heart to God. Lord, I'm a sinner. I believe Jesus died for my sin. I ask you to forgive me of my sin and I give you my life. I want to follow you. He promises to save you, deliver you. I encourage you to do that right now from your heart to God in your own words in this sacred moment. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for this privilege, grand privilege that it is to look into the pages of your word. Lord, we believe as your people that we are privileged beyond measure to be called the people of God and then to be given the word of God to be able to read it, to have it in our hands, to be able to study it and proclaim it, to be changed by it. And then we have the privilege of being your ambassadors, to preach it to those who most desperately need to be brought out of the world and to yourself. Thank you, Lord, for this privilege to stand before your people and those who may have come in this room outside your family, to call them to be adopted into your family. Oh, Lord, we want to honor your word. Help us to be people who do that individually. Help us to be a church that does that as a congregation. Help Community Bible Church to be known in this community and beyond as a place where one can come and learn and grow by the Word of God. And as a result, may you be pleased to grow us, grow your church, and bring glory to your name. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.